Welcome to episode 34 of The Neural Network. Today, we're talking about a very critical issue, opioid-induced respiratory depression. New paper out in the Journal of Physiology, myself as the first author, titled Comparative Examination of Morphine and Fentanyl, Unraveling the Differential Impacts on Breathing and Airway Stability. That's right, new work done by our lab. Uh, this is the primary culmination of my work in the lab, uh, looking into the effects of opioids on neural and physiological systems. So if you have any interest in opioids, if you're interested in the current epidemic that's going on right now and interested in trying to see some novel techniques in order to come up with new or adjunctive therapies to overcome the opioids, then stay tuned. Okay, let's talk about opioids. Opioids have been both hailed as a magical cure as well as condemned as a curse. For the millennia, these compounds have played a pivotal role in managing pain, but of course they also come with the dark side, the potential for misuse, addiction, and life-threatening side effects. So, the hell are opioids? Opioids are a class of drugs uh, derived from the opium poppy plant. So they work by binding to opioid receptors within the brain, spinal cord, and other areas of the body. So these opioid receptors are sort of uh, distributed throughout all different areas of the body. And when you take an opioid drug, it just binds to that receptor. And so it doesn't necessarily uh, discriminate as to where it's going to bind within the body. It just binds to anywhere that has an opioid receptor. So they work by binding to the opioid receptors and they dampen the ability of any of these cells that have opioid receptors to send out signals. And they also dampen the ability of those uh, cells that express the opioid receptors to respond to signals that are coming into it. So it essentially shuts off many different areas. So it's been touted as a very potent inhibitory drug within the central nervous system, as well as in different peripheral areas that express the opioid receptor. But not all opioids are created equal. There's subtle and sometimes significant differences between them. So uh, some of them are, are natural, like morphine and codeine. Other ones that are synthetic. These are things like fentanyl and, and methadone. And still, you know, others fall in between as they're, they're called semi-synthetics, like oxycodone and hydrocodone. So some of the common opioids that are used, those being morphine, codeine, fentanyl, methadone, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and heroin, uh, these are just some of the common ones that are that are either used illicitly or prescribed uh, within the clinic. So morphine, of course, is often used in hospitals and, and the opioid that many people are aware of when you first talk about opioids. It's actually named after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams, interestingly enough. Codeine, of course, is found in uh, some prescription cough syrups and pain relievers. Then you have things like fentanyl, which are extremely potent, and often used in patches and surgical procedures because uh, of its potency. Then you have methadones, which... You know, methadone is an opiate that is often used to treat opioid addiction and chronic pain. Um, and so it's it's some, it's an opioid that's often used within rehab clinics in order to wean individuals off of a stronger opiate dependency. There's also things like oxycodone and hydrocodone. Uh, so oxycodone is commonly known as oxycontin. Um, it's certainly sold offhand on the streets illicitly, but it's also used uh, as a, a pain reliever following surgery, things like that. You have hydrocodone. Uh, hydrocodone is found in the prescription pain meds, uh, especially that of Vicodin. Uh, so this is a very common opioid that's prescribed post-surgical post procedure for pain relief. Um, and anyone that's ever taken it knows how strong and potent this are. These, this is. 
Heroin then is also an opiate. It's an it's an illicit drug, and it's actually derived from morphine. So these are just some of the common different opiates that are used, um, either illicitly or within the clinic. Now, like I've said on this show many times before, opiates often get a bad rap, and, and rightfully so for the amount of um, abuse that these opioids tend to accrue within a public type of setting. Uh, however, opioids are very powerful at doing exactly what they're they're created to do, right? Which is to, to block pain. And so while it's easy to demonize opioids when you look at some of the ongoing crisis and public health effects that we'll get into in a little bit, it's important to note that opioids in and of themselves or opioids per se are not evil. They work at relieving pain and they're very good at relieving pain. And without opiates, uh, the, the medical treatment of uh, severe procedures that require pain management during and after would be completely different, right? So think about when you go in and you get your surgery done, you get a knee replaced, a hip replaced, something like that. When you come out of surgery, you've just had a major part of your body cut out and replaced, right? So you're going to be in immense amounts of pain, but thanks to these opiates, you don't experience that pain. And similarly, for some chronic pain conditions, these patients are in pain all the time. They wake up in pain, they walk around in pain, they try to go to sleep and they're just in pain. So their life is absolutely miserable. And sometimes these opiates uh, are some of the only drugs that are effective at actually removing this pain and actually increasing the quality of life in these patients. So while it's easy to very easy to demonize opiates because they are easy to become dependent and they're very addictive in their properties, for many individuals, opioids can increase the quality of life. So it's just something to be aware of. So with that being said, uh, opioids, like I said, do offer significant pain relief, but they're also right now, at least at the epicenter of a public health crisis. So over the years, the, the misuse and overprescription of these drugs have led to an alarming number of overdose deaths, many of which result from opioid-induced respiratory depression, which is uh, just a condition where when the opioids act on the receptors within the, the areas that control your breathing within your brainstem, it shuts off your breathing or it, it, it reduces the ability of your brain to tell you to breathe. And this is the primary cause of death from the opioids. Now, just to, to put the opioid crisis in perspective, right now, averaging roughly 110,000 drug overdose deaths within the US every year. 110,000. That's not that that's not the total amount of drug overdoses. That's the total amount of people that have died from drug overdoses. To put it in perspective, the city of Green Bay, Wisconsin, home to the Green Bay Packers is 107,000. So more people than the entire city of Green Bay, Wisconsin die every year from an opioid overdose. And out of those 110,000 people that die, 85,000 of them is from opiates. So if you take all the drugs, you take cocaine, you take methamphetamine, you take all the alcohol, you take all of these different substances and you look at the uh, rate at which overdose on these substances results in death, that only makes up about 20,000, 25,000 out of the 110,000 versus opiates alone make up 85,000 of it. So the, the risk or the rate, not the risk, sorry, the, the rate of death from opiates is so exponentially higher than any other drug that it rightfully is gaining the largest attention within the media, the largest attention within public funding. And it's something that needs to be addressed to figure out why is it that these opioids are killing so many people and why can't we figure out a way in order to 
create better therapies so that way, one, you don't actually result in the death in the first place, or of course, then how do you uh, create better uh, post-overdose therapies in order to uh, revive individuals from an overdose, from a current overdose. So this then brings us to the recent paper uh, that was uh, published within our lab. Like I said, I'm the first author on that paper, so it was the uh, primary work of myself within within the paper that did the studies and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the title of the paper was a comparative examination of morphine and fentanyl, unraveling the differential impacts on breathing and airway stability. So one of the things that is primary within my studies within the lab is understanding how opioids work. And, and one of the interesting things is that what we found is that there's a large degree of variability when it comes to opioids, which is one of the things that makes the opioids so dangerous, uh, is that, you know, the, the amount of opioid that you give someone on one day might have no effect on pain. And the same dose of that opioid given to the, the same patient on another day will end up in a terminal fatal event. Uh, similarly, when you look across individuals, um, the amount of opiate that you might give to one person to relieve pain is lethal for another. So this this variability is something that's uh, alarming, and it makes it very challenging, not only clinically, in order to treat uh, patients for pain using opiates, but also scientifically, it makes it very difficult to understand how exactly the opioids are affecting the network. Uh, the brainstem networks in particular, one of the things that we focus on, the cardiorespiratory control centers, and, uh, you know, how exactly do these opioids uh, affect the body physiologically? Because many of the, the physiological systems within the body are driven largely by these neural control systems. And so uh, we often term, you know, the field, the neural control of breathing, uh, because it's the, the, the ability of you to breathe originates within these neural signals that are coming from the brainstem and send it down uh, these signals to the diaphragm in order to tell you to take a breath. So previous work that I had been working on was looking into this variability and figuring out how we can make the unpredictability predictable. And we did that by understanding that the brainstem itself, this, this network within um, the brainstem that controls your respiration or this hub of neurons that sends these rhythmic oscillatory outputs down to the phrenic nerve in order to recruit your diaphragm to make you to breathe, assumes different states of excitability, as you might imagine. And so um, when you're running from a bear, for example, this this network might be in a state of hyper excitability in order to make you breathe faster. And during times when you're sleeping, per se, uh, this network assumes a low state of excitability such that you're not breathing so much. So um, the ability of that network to respond to the opioids during each of those different states um, was wildly different. So if you hyper-excited the network, you gave the opioids, the opioids just acted to actually slow it down and restabilize the network. And so this network was very much not susceptible to opioid-induced respiratory depression. Conversely, if you take this network and it's hypo-excited or it's low, in a low state of excitability, like would be seen during sleep or something like that, the ability of the opiates to actually shut down this network were very high, right? And so these networks assumed a state of high sensitivity to the opioids. And so what we found is that every brainstem itself can assume different states based on the, what we call the neuromodulatory milieu or how uh, this, this, this bombardment of neuromodulators are influencing factors that are coming from different regions of the brain and all synapsing within this uh, central hub that controls your breathing. Um, so that was one of the, the groundbreaking things that we had originally found when we were starting the opioid project. And 
a lot of this work had been done in vitro, meaning that we we can take the brainstem out of uh, an animal. We did this in mice. Uh, and one of the cool things about the respiratory networks of, of neurons is that they create their own intrinsic signals. So they're uh, both necessary and sufficient for the generation of breathing. And so that just means that when you take this network and you, you inhibit it, then it shuts off breathing and it leads to a, a terminal event. But they also create the ability to have rhythm generation or the ability to create the signals to tell the body to breathe even when the rest of the body isn't there. And so if you take the brain step out, you put it in a dish and you record from it, these neurons still create this rhythmic signal telling your body to breathe without the rest of the body actually being there. So it's an intrinsic rhythm generator. And, and this is very important when you're trying to study the intrinsic properties of that network because you can remove all of the, the modulating factors that would change the activity of this network. You can, can study just this hub of neurons by themselves. And so that's what we did. Um, now, moving on to this current paper that was just published in the Journal of Physiology, what we wanted to do was move uh, from that system into an in vivo system, meaning that uh, we're going to test how these opioids actually work in the whole animal. And of course, as any research study goes, uh, things don't always go the way that you think that they're going to go. Um, and that's always exciting, right? Uh, because it opens up new questions, new opportunities for research. And so, uh, you know, when you start researching things, you have these strict hypotheses and you try to see, you know, how you can, uh, test these hypotheses and, and, and you sort of get bogged down when you realize that your hypotheses don't come true. But then, you know, as you progress in research, what I've found is that, you know, you have a hypothesis about how a system works and it's good to have that, you know, the constructive framework as to these big picture questions of what you're going to be researching, but at the end of the day, the, the physiological data, the physiology or the neuroscience data have to guide where you're going with each of these stories. And so you, you set up a hypothesis and you create ways to test that hypothesis. But when you do that first study, the results of that are then going to drive you towards or away from testing different hypotheses. And so uh, you have to let the data sort of lead you to where it's going to lead you because it's ultimately going to tell the story. Right. All right. Our job as scientists, at least in my opinion, is is we are not here to manipulate the data in order to form it to what we think. We're here to report the data and to interpret what it's telling us. And I think that's a, that's an important distinction. Um, and so true to that, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was to create a more translational approach to understand the opiates. And so um, many of the studies that we do in isolated slice use the synthetic opioid DAMGO. Um, and this is a uh, opiate that works very well. It's very specific for a single opiate receptor, the mu opioid receptor. And uh, it's very easy to gain access Two, and it's it's works very well in in a scientific setting. Um, and the what we wanted to do then was to take a more translational approach to move away from this damgo and, and use something that was clinically relevant um, and relevant to public health crisis. And so we moved over to studying fentanyl. And you know, fentanyl is often touted as being extremely potent, and and that's sometimes I think given a misnomer as to why it. Uh, has created such a, a crisis when it comes to overdose and overdose deaths. And what I mean by that is that the 
potency of the drug is not a mechanism as to increase the risk of death or an overdose, right? Because uh, just because something is, you know, 10 times more concentrated doesn't mean that it has a higher risk of death. It only, it, that would only be the case if you're consuming the exact same amount of volume for something that is 10 times weaker versus 10 times stronger. And, and to put it that in perspective, uh, you know, if you're, if you're if you're looking at you know the concentrated orange juice that you can buy in the freezer, uh, orange juice concentrate for example, you know you take that orange juice and you put it in um, a, a big jar or whatever, and then you dilute it with water, however many you know ten times or whatever. And if you drink that whole jar of uh, diluted orange juice, it might taste good or whatever. It might be good. Um, but if you fill that entire jar up with the concentrate itself then you might say, well, the concentrate is a higher likelihood of giving me a bellyache, right? Because it's just like this concentrated orange juice that's not diluted. And so so you can kind of similarly think of that when you're comparing fentanyl to many of the other drugs. And so, for example, fentanyl is about a thousand times more potent uh, than that of morphine, meaning that for the exact same concentration of drug, if you gave 50 milligrams of morphine versus 50 milligrams of fentanyl, the 50 milligrams of fentanyl is going to have 1,000 times the activity on the opioid receptors compared to the same 50 milligrams of morphine. And the first question that we wanted to ask then was if we scale the drugs such that the amount on respirate, the, the effect on the physiology was the same and we, and we scaled the concentration of the drugs, how does it affect the rest of the physiological systems? So that was sort of the basic question. And so what I ended up doing was I took the mice and I exposed them to uh, 150 mg per gig morphine. So this is just sort of a, a, it's a standard dose for anesthetized mice uh, in order to reproducibly cause a uh, reduction of about 50% in their breathing. And then what I did is I took the fentanyl and I and I tailored the dose of the fentanyl in order to result in the exact same amount of respiratory suppression as the 150 mg per kg morphine. And what that ended up being was 500 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl. And so obviously micrograms is, you know, one thousandth of a, a milligram. Um, so you can, you can kind of see the differences in potencies already right there. But anyways, so the 500 micrograms per kilogram fentanyl gave the exact same amount of respiratory suppression as the 500 or excuse me, as the 150 milligrams per kilogram of fentanyl. So each of these reduced the, the rate of breathing or how fast the mouse was breathing by about 50%. So m mice normally breathe around 300 breaths per minute, and this would drop the breathing down to about 150 uh, breaths per minute. And uh, so we did this in both airway intact and tracheostomized mice. Uh, so just meaning that in... in so in, in mice, when you're studying them in a anesthetized in vivo or whole animal preparation, uh, sometimes you have to tracheostomize or put in a trach tube uh, within the mice in order to prevent the mouse from aspirating from saliva. Because when you're, when you're sort of messing around with some of that circuitry near the upper airways, uh, th those are very sensitive to touch. And so anything that touches them or gets close to them tends to cause a hypersecretion of mucus. And so that mucus then goes down into the lungs and causes aspiration. Uh, and so to get around that, what you can do is you can stick a tracheostomy tube in there. Um, and so I, I split the groups and I wanted to do both. And so I wanted to say, you know, in a tracheostomized mice, how does it respond? Because this is what many of the studies are done on um, 
And so this is sort of gives you a comparison to much of the previous literature to see how these data relate. Conversely, um, the airway intact model, which is my preferred model, is that of a more physiologically relevant system. So everything is intact. And so I was able to do this in enough mice uh, in order to get the data. And so, like I said, the the amount of respiratory suppression was relatively similar between the two. Uh, fentanyl ended up having the uh, effect on breathing a little bit faster than that of morphine, which is not too unexpected. So one of the pharmacological properties of fentanyl is that not only is it more potent in the fact that uh, it takes less drug in order to give a similar amount of uh, analgesia or a similar amount of activation of the opioid receptors, but it also tends to bind uh, slightly faster. And so we, we did see that the fentanyl dropped breathing a little bit faster than that of the morphine, um, but that wasn't something that was all that unexpected. So if you have the paper, figure one. If you don't have the figure, uh, then that's totally fine. We'll, we'll walk through it here. But basically the, the first part of the study was just showing that we can in fact match morphine and fentanyl in their effects on respiration. So then we can look at uh, the effects on other systems such as the airways. Because one of the interesting things that we found along the way is that when I gave fentanyl, the upper, or excuse me, not that, but the, the, the airways of the mice tended to collapse versus when I gave morphine, we didn't really see that, uh, or at least we certainly didn't see that as often. And so that was one peculiar thing. And so when we actually uh, then like I said, scaled the doses, one of the biggest things that we noticed that was different between the two drugs, uh, and this is one of the most important findings of the paper, is that when you administer fentanyl, fentanyl causes the airways to just constrict. And so not only are you getting the problem of shutting down the central or the brainstem sites that are trying to tell your brain to breathe, but in addition to that, it's causing this co this constriction of the airways, so you can't even move air, even if you get the signal back. And so this is terrifying, right? Because many of the traditional approaches to study opioids have long focused on just the central effects. How do opioids shut down these neural networks that that are driving the signals to tell us to breathe? And if we can, you know, if we can create ways to overcome that, then we might be able to have new or better therapies to overcome the opioids. However, if we fail to uh, look at the, the whole neurophysiological system as a whole intact, then we're missing a large piece of the equation. And so this is one of the, the, the first studies that shows that in addition to this, this depression of central neural activity, you're also getting constriction of the airways. And so even if we create new drugs, new therapies that reverse the effects within the brainstem, uh, that are controlling this respiratory rhythm generation, if that's done on the face of a constricted airway, we can drive the the rhythm generating units within the brainstem to breathe all we want. But if the airways are closed off, no air is going to be moving in or out. And so it highlights the fact that we need to take a more integrative approach when it comes to studying these opioids. So that way we can address the entire problem. So just as, you know, when we if we create therapies to attack the airways and we're able to open up the airways, if the central drive to breathe is not there, then you get the effect of, of not breathing. Conversely, like I said, if you uh, reverse the central drive depression that occurs from the opioids, but it's occurring at the same time as airway constriction, you're not going to be moving any air either. And so we need to be able to address both of these at the same time. 
So then, you know, after we found that we were getting these uh, constrictions of the airway from from the opioids, and, and the way that we found that was that when you gave the fentanyl, there was this period during every breath at which the diaphragm was contracting, uh, but there was no airflow. So normally, every time that your diaphragm contracts, you get airflow immediately because it's creating the, the, the changes in the pressure that are necessary in order to move the air. Uh, but that wasn't the case with the fentanyl. And so it was like, well, what the heck? Okay, it's it's certainly having some, some airway issues. Um, so one of the ways that we could quantify this is just the latency between the activation of the diaphragm and the onset of airflow. And so that's what we did. Um, and of course, then that latency goes up when you give fentanyl, whereas it doesn't go up during morphine. So that was one one striking difference. And then what we wanted to do then was to dive into some of the upper airway circuitry to figure out you know, where exactly is, are these obstructions occurring? Because uh, they can occur at the upper airway, being that of like the larynx um, or the, the vocal folds, if you will. Or they can create, uh, be created from the the lower airways. And so these are some of the airways that are under control of smooth muscle. Um, mainly the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system are, are sort of handshaking and always creating a balance of constriction and dilation of these airways in order to allow you to... Um, conduct as much air as you need in order to stay oxygenated and remove CO2, but also not wide open enough that uh, you have no defense against things coming in. So uh, to study the um, the larynx or to study the vocal folds and their effects on the, uh, or, or what happens to them during the opioids to see if the uh, effect of fentanyl in reducing airflow was caused by a constriction of the um of the larynx. We put EMG wires into the vocal folds of the mice. And what we found is that when you gave each of the drugs, fentanyl and morphine, they both essentially just shut off the ability of the larynx to, to contract. And so the, the larynx normally opens and closes with every breath. And so when you put an EMG wire, which just measures uh, muscular activity, it looks very similar to that of breathing, right? Because it needs to contract to open up and then it relaxes during, uh, and it re relaxes in between each breath because you want the larynx closed in between each breath so that things don't just suddenly fall down your trachea. Uh, but it also needs to open up every time that you want to take a breath. So you're not trying to, to suffocate yourself. So it, it, it's very oscillatory, similar to that of, uh, our breathing. Um, but interestingly, you know, the fentanyl and the morphine both almost completely got rid of, uh, the activity of the larynx. Um, so basically then the ability of the larynx to open and close was primarily dictated by just the, the pressure of air that was being exposed to it during each inhalation and exhalation. So, um, you know, that, that does contribute to the constriction, right? Because the larynx is now just sort of floppy. Um, but this was occurring in both the fentanyl and the morphine. So it was clear that uh, these transient obstructions that are occurring within the fentanyl that we didn't see within the morphine is likely not due to the larynx per se. So the larynx might be contributing a little bit, uh, but it was equal across both of them. And so that certainly wasn't accounting for uh, the differences that we saw. So then uh, moving down the uh, moving down the the airway path, then we get down to the smooth muscle airways, or these the the sort of the bronchioles. And so these airways are lined with smooth muscles um, that allow for these airways to constrict or dilate uh, in response to different things. So in certain conditions like asthma, for example, you have hyperreactive airways that cause um, uh, constriction that make it hard to breathe. So anytime that asthmatics are exposed to allergens or something like that, 
they have this hyper reflexive response to close off the airways uh, versus that of of control individuals. And so uh, one of the ways that you can counteract this is by um, giving sympathetic mimetics. Wow. Uh, that's tough to say, but these are things like albuterol or salbutamol is the actual, uh, drug that's used with albuterol. Um, and in these, what they do is they target these smooth muscle airways rather specifically, and they cause a dilation. Um, so they open them back up and, and similarly, um, drugs like epinephrine, like in an EpiPen, um, this is one of the things that it also does as well. And so if you're having an allergic reaction, one of the things that happens, uh, is that you get the airways closing off. Um, so so for, for, for whatever reason, allergens, um, especially in those individuals that are hypersensitive, tend to close off the airway, likely to prevent the inhalation of, of things like pollen and that kind of stuff, uh, or whatever it is that you're um, allergic to. And when you have this response, like I said, you can give epinephrine, and the epinephrine similarly acts on uh, the sympathetic receptors within this network or excuse me within uh this musculature in order to cause dilation because sympathetic excessive sympathetic drive to the airways will cause dilation versus that of parasympathetic drive which will uh, cause constriction so parasympathetic drive to these uh regions is largely controlled by uh the vagal nerve branches and so the originating from the vagus nerve so it's always, like I said, this sort of balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic drive that dictate how open those lower airways are at any given time. And so one of the ways that though you can study whether or not they're constricted is to, to add sympathetic drive to these airways in order to dilate them because these agents um, that enhance sympathetic activity act on the lower airways, but they don't act on the upper airways, like that of the larynx, because the the, the, smooth, the the smooth muscle airways, as their name suggests, are coated with smooth muscle versus that of the larynx, which is skeletal muscle and are, are much less uh, responsive to these drugs. And so we gave the, um, the fentanyl, we got the the airway constrictions, this fentanyl-induced airway constriction, and then what we did is we administered the salbutamol, um, and we also administered in a separate trial, uh, in a separate group, we administered epinephrine, similar to that of an EpiPen. And sure enough, uh, it completely reversed the effects of the airway constriction from the fentanyl. So the important thing to note, though, is that it doesn't reverse the suppression of respiratory frequency suppression. It doesn't reverse that, but what it does is that it reverses the constriction that occurs from in the airways from the opiates. And so it's very important. And I think being able to um, administer these drugs as an adjunctive therapy with something that can enhance respiratory drive centrally, respiratory rhythm drive centrally, could uh, be a potential therapeutic to look into going forward. And so we saw a similar effect with epinephrine. Um, so epinephrine is is actually in, in some types of croup, uh, which is another airway condition. Um, the, you can uh, administer something called racemic epinephrine. Uh, it's also used as a, a bronchodilator. So a lot of these, these drugs are classified as bronchodilators and they're, they're very commonplace. And so um, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be necessarily that of an EpiPen. There's other uses for epinephrine that extend beyond that of an EpiPen. 
But regardless, we found the the same effect. And so it seems that driving these sympathetic uh, pathways in order to cause the dilation of the smooth muscle airways reverses the fentanyl-induced airway constriction, suggesting that the lower airways or the smooth muscle-containing airways are what are essentially the largest contributors for this fentanyl-induced airway constriction. And so that was what we found in the paper. We also found, and I put in there, um, is that if you look at the physiological psi, um, for anyone that's interested or anyone that's apt on a lot of the biohacking communities, if you will, is, uh, have heard of physiological size. And so this is the augmented breaths or these larger breaths that, uh, occur rhythmically. And so sometimes we can do these behaviorally, you know, and, and sometimes they happen on autonomically. So we don't even think about them. And to be honest, I, you know, there's a lot of these protocols that are out there that are, uh, telling you to, uh, volitionally tell yourself to sigh. And I'm not sure whether or not you get the same neurological effect during those versus that of an autonomically driven sigh. So when, even when you take brain stems out and you put them in a dish, they'll still continue to rhythmically sigh every once in a while. But I, I have a hard time thinking that, uh, those sighs are, you know, which are what a lot of the the studies looking at the benefits of the sigh, if you will, those are based on autonomically driven size, not volitional size. And so, you know, the data still needs to be fleshed out, but whether or not uh, you telling yourself to do a sigh versus your body just doing a sigh in, in and of itself, um, my, I suspect that the effects are are different. So um, it might be not a waste of time, but, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if mindful sighing is going to give you the same benefits. Anyways, that's sort of a, a tangent, but one of the things that we did find um, because in addition to, you know, these behavioral effects of calming and whatever, um, sighing is very important for preventing something called atelectasis. And so normally uh, your alveoli are these little grape sacs that are at the end of your airways that actually allow the exchange of oxygen and CO2 from the blood. Um, normally they uh, tend to collapse. <laughs> um, and so every once in a while you need sort of this hyperinflation to blow your lungs back up. Uh, to prevent them from from collapsing so much, and so um, that that collapse is called atelectasis. And so, uh, w- whenever uh, size are occurring, one of the big one of the one of the important things is that they prevent atelectasis from occurring. So they sort of hyperinflate your lungs temporarily in order to uh, sort of blow those things back up real quick. And uh, it was interesting because the the fentanyl itself actually completely inhibited the incidence of size, and so it it just completely got rid of all psi activity, all of it. There weren't any size after we gave the fentanyl. And so that's sort of scary because in addition to, you know, it, it depresses central activity, um, it also causes this airway constriction, which makes it harder to get air in, and it shuts off the ability to sigh. And so your lungs or your your alveoli are at a heightened risk of collapse. And so you sort of have this tripartite uh, effect of these, these opioids in order to really cause... Uh, a respiratory-induced death. Uh, when we compared that to morphine, the morphine also reduced size, but it didn't completely get rid of size, at least not to the effect of the fentanyl. So, for again, for a uh, uh, for a similar suppression of respiratory rate activity, fentanyl completely inhibited size, morphine reduced size, but didn't completely inhibit them. So that was the paper, you know. So, so what are the implications of it? What it means is that when we're looking at opiates, um, you know, using a certain opiate and trying to extrapolate the effects of that opiate across all opiates might not be something that 
uh, is completely efficacious. Sometimes we look at opiates and we say, okay, it's a, a mu opioid receptor uh, agonist and it causes suppression of central neural activity. And so, uh, you know, we're going to use these highly specific ones to extrapolate those effects out into um, the ones that are used commonly in the clinic or in the street. Uh, but this suggests that some of the opioids uh, actually do have some unique effects on uh, other physiological, neurophysiological systems. Um, and so that could be important when you're trying to tailor individual treatments or individual studies towards specific uh, opioids. You know, theoretically, the opiate drugs should be acting on similar targets. So why uh, some like for why does fentanyl have the effects on the airway versus that of morphine? I, you know, we don't know. Um, it, it's, could be due to the, you know, the pharmacodynamics of, you know, let's say that the rate of activation of the opiate receptor by fentanyl versus that of, uh, morphine might be different and, or we, well, we know it's different. We know that the fentanyl activates the receptors faster, but you know, whether the, that would change downstream signaling in order to alter the activity of the, the neurons, uh, versus that of, of morphine is a question that would be interesting to be asked. I don't know necessarily how to assess downstream signaling based on the kinetic activation of the receptor. I don't even know if there's, there's model, I'm sure there's models for it that could sort of give some insights, but as far as like tailoring a study towards that, I think, uh, you know, we would definitely need some insight from people that are a little bit more, um, into the literature and into the research area of, of pharmacodynamics, but it's certainly something that, that could be, um, addressed, you know, one of the other things that we we found in the paper too, which was sort of interesting, one of the last things that we found in the paper uh, that I forgot to mention was that um, with the fentanyl, uh, there was a higher incidence of death when the mice became hypoxic versus that of morphine. So I'll try to explain it. So basically, um, whenever you slow your breathing or if you have a constriction of your airways and you don't compensate with an increased rate of breathing, uh, you can become hypoxic or you have a low level of oxygen. Um, some people call this cyanosis when people turn blue because of a, a lack of oxygen, right? And so it's interesting to see what happens when you expose the animals to hypoxia in the presence of the drug in order to control for what happens when the oxygen drops. And so that's what we did. So we gave the fentanyl and we gave the morphine and we exposed the, the mice to 10% oxygen. Normal oxygen in the air is 21% oxygen. And we looked at the ability to survive over time. And so uh, what we found was that fentanyl, uh, again, for, for the same amount of respiratory suppression, uh, when you administer the 500 micrograms per kilogram fentanyl, uh, it took nearly a minute or two of exposure to the hypoxia, and it resulted in a, a terminal event. Uh, versus that of morphine, where uh, most of the mice that were exposed to morphine uh, never ended up having a terminal event in the exposure to hypoxia. So for some reason, the fentanyl actually uh, heightened the risk of death in hypoxia versus that of morphine, um, which is interesting. And it brings up something that, you know, um, is scary because when you slow your breathing or when you get the airway constriction, you normally become hypoxic. Um, and so it seems that this mixture of hypoxia and fentanyl together is particularly lethal uh, versus if you can keep the, the, the 
mice in this case, or if you can keep the patients oxygenated, even with a suppression of respiratory activity, they're able to survive. But once that oxygen saturation drops, boom, they, they seem to die right away. Versus morphine, the oxygen saturation seems to be able to drop a little bit, uh, and that same risk of immediate death isn't, isn't there, at least in, in the studies that we found here. So, you know, what does it all mean? It means that opiates are not all equivocal, uh, and it means that we need to, within the studies, take a broader look at the systems intact, uh, in vivo systems intact, in order to actually create adjunctive therapies for the for uh, the opiate overdose. And so, you know, the idea here is to sort of plant the seed that perhaps, again, this is all a hypothesis, perhaps, you know, if we can take these commonplace bronchodilators, uh, we can maybe perhaps create cures that mix them with, let's say, naloxone. So naloxone right now is the the current uh, standard of treatment for opioid overdose. And it works very well. However, in you know roughly about a third of those opioid overdose deaths, naloxone was given. Uh, it just was not effective enough in order to do that. And, and similarly, about 75% of the uh, overdose deaths, uh, EMS or emergency medical services were present at the time. And so being able to create uh, better treatments or better um, protocols in order to overcome the opiates is, is something that's very important to look at. And so what these data suggest is, is that we, you know, in addition to the naloxone, which kicks the receptor off or kicks the opioid off of the receptor, which is theoretically supposed to, um, reverse the effects of the opioids somewhat instantly. And it does do a very good job of doing that. The problem is that the patients end up going into acute withdrawal. Uh, and so they come out very angry and, and they come out swinging because you just kick all the opioids completely off the receptor. Um, you know, and so one of the things that happens is, is EMS sometimes, uh, you know, has to try to give enough Narcan in order to keep the patients, uh, alive, but not so much that they become conscious and start, uh, becoming severely agitated and, and go through withdrawal. And so you kind of have this pharmacist in the back of the truck event, uh, which can be quite terrifying, um, especially because once that, that respiratory suppression starts, it's sometimes very hard to stop. And so, you know, adding a bronchodilator to some of these therapies might be a way in order to reduce the amount of Narcan that's necessary. So what you could, what could happen is you might be able to hyperdilate uh, the airways to the point where even at a lower rate of respiratory uh, breathing, or even at a lower rate of breathing, uh, with the airways super dilated, you would increase the ability to have a higher oxygen saturation um, for a given breath, if that makes sense. So basically the, the, so the resistance to breathing uh, is much lower. So even with a reduced rate of breathing, uh, the likelihood that you would be more oxygenated um, is 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 higher. And so uh, by combining the uh, bronchodilators with a lower dose of, of Narcan, you might be able to uh, give a, a dose of Narcan that keeps the individual um, unconscious but gives enough kick to respiratory drive that in conjunction with the hyperdilated airways uh, is enough to keep them alive until the opioid can run its course. So that's sort of uh, some of the ongoing studies that are, are happening right now, um, you know, as a as a next step to to the study. And then obviously looking into the actual mechanisms as to why the airways shut down with fentanyl versus that of 
of morphine is going on as well. So with that, uh, that was the paper. Uh, it's in the Journal of Physiology. Uh, a link is in the description. And so thanks for joining for another episode of The Neural Network, www.theneuronetwork.org, Apple, Spotify, any podcast player. If you like these episodes, give us a like or even comment. Anything of that nature does, in fact, actually really help um, as far as uh, being able to do these podcasts. So with that, enjoy your week. Okay, bye.